Um, Ron and Christine are coming to us all the way from Langley, I believe you live, right? <laughs> That's right. So they've served in a bazillion capacities, uh, I think pastor in Ontario for quite some time, and then out here in Cloverdale, and then uh, one of the last things that he served the Free Church was as our executive director. And I think, are you currently still our uh, chairman? No. Ooh, no. All right, so he was our chairman, and now he's also an artiste. So if you follow him on Facebook, you're going to see some fantastic art inspired by anything from landscapes to his grandchildren and yada, yada, yada. But both of them have been faithfully married and in ministry for many, many, <laughs> many years. Is that enough? Many? Should I stop while I'm ahead, eh? Anyway, thanks, brother, for coming, and come preach the word for us. Thank you. I hate those long introductions, <laughs> especially when they ac accent uh, the years that have gone by. But thanks again, Steve, for the invitation. Every time that I have an opportunity like this, and they're rarer as the years go on, I have an opportunity to get into the Word seriously, and the Lord always has something specifically to say to me, and that's really good before I stand up here. There are, probably have been a couple of ways that one could cover the story that's in front of us today. One author might have treated it anecdotally, no witnesses to this particular event, unsubstantiated, and yet the story itself was noteworthy enough because the subject at the heart of the story later on became a worldwide phenomenon. And of the two writers who did a good job of recording this particular event, one was a tax collector, so understandably not many friends, and then he found Jesus, and Jesus became his close friend. He became a disciple of Jesus. His name is Matthew, and he spent a lot of time with Jesus. The other one was a medical doctor, a professional, and his name was Luke. Luke uh, never met Jesus himself personally, but he listened to what other people said about Jesus, and because of that, he became a follower of Christ himself. Beside Matthew and Luke, there was one other person who had kind of a, a Twitter account, and so he tweeted a couple of sentences about this particular event, and that was Mark. And Mark did it that way because he had been a teenager when Jesus was preaching, and so he hadn't been up close and personal with Jesus, um, but he did follow him with all of his heart. Uh, so Luke is the one that we're spending time with this morning, and it's the fourth chapter the first 13 verses of that chapter. And if you have your Bibles, and I know that you do, let's take a look at that fourth chapter. And I'll read this for us as we approach it now at the beginning. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, 
you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and sent him, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, after all, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hand, hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportunity. So now you know the capsule of the story. So this is what Luke essentially said. And if he had been approaching it on a very insincere and superficial level, as I suggested, this is one way of writing it and one way of reading it, then all he would have said to us is, Jesus found himself in a rather remote place. He fasted there for 40 days, and then he was assaulted by the devil with some temptations, three particular approaches. And if Jesus had been vulnerable at all to these temptations, any one of these three approaches would have been successful. You're hungry. Why not take care of yourself, do something? Just imagine tearing a piece of bread off of a fresh oven-baked loaf of bread and tasting that. And here's some stones. Why not take a stone and make a loaf of bread? And Jesus declined that. And then the devil said to Jesus, take a look at all of this extravagant beauty in the nations that are around it. If you worship me, I'll give it to you. It's in my power to do that. And it's all yours if you'll worship me. And using scripture, Jesus declined that invitation too. And then again, the devil said to Jesus, I'm just a, a, a little bit more concerned about this claim you make about being the Son of God, and if you are the Son of God, why don't you now do what I ask you to do? Here we are in the pinnacle of the temple, 450 feet above the ground on the 45th floor. I just want you to throw yourself down because you know that you're the Son of God and God is going to send a host of angels to intercept your fall and set you safely on the earth again. And Jesus declined that invitation too. So that's a cursory treatment of this event. And it could be viewed as a fascinating yarn, but looking at it that way would have absolutely no connection to us, no relationship to where you and I are today and where we live the rest of the days of this coming week as we did this past week. So there was another way of writing this, and there is another way of reading it. And Luke did a good job. It was a very genuine, convincing account that becomes prescriptive if we read it well. It becomes prescriptive for us as we face temptations every day, and we do. People are vulnerable when they're not equipped for the conditions. And this week started out cold, didn't it? Bitterly cold, right on Monday. This is one of those... Well, it's one of the 52 weeks of the year that I wish I had the Dirksen gene uh, because every man in my family for the last 400 years has gone bald before the 30. And, and cold Friday and over this weekend. So this has been a really cold week, and I was one of the many hundreds of people that got a note from William Mollard from the Union Gospel Mission. And he wrote to us and said, temperatures... Drop below freezing in Metro Vancouver, minus nine. Uh, serious safety risk for people on the streets. Would you respond to urgent need of shelter and warmth for people struggling in the cold? Help can't wait. Your 
gift will go to the immediate needs of those who are at risk providing winter survival gear, emergency shelter, and other life-saving services. You're making an incredible difference for someone who is vulnerable. Cold temperatures are a huge risk to vulnerable people. And I thought of that, and then I thought of this, and I thought to myself, icy temptation is a huge risk to you and me, because I knew I was going to come here to vulnerable people like us. Somehow we've got to get our thinking adjusted. Somehow the Holy Spirit of God has got to adjust our thinking so that we recognize our need for protection is absolutely urgent. We, if we don't start thinking that, we, we just keep ourselves out there exposed without any shelter. And the alarming truth is we can't wait. We need to be prepared ahead of time. We have an immediate need. And so today, God is giving us a lesson in temptation readiness from the example of his own incarnated son, Jesus, on combating Satan with his obsession to ruin us. So in your sequential study now of the gospel according to Luke, you've come to this fourth chapter. And Jesus has, is facing a temptation here. It will become for us today, at least in many of our cases, a recipe a recipe for our protection and our victory. It's an exemplary event. And we'll see the three temptations as we've looked at them quickly already. And there is a significant takeaway for us. And perhaps I could sum it all up in one kind of large uh, overarching principle. We are constantly temptation ready when we are filled with the Spirit, and when we are in communication with the Father. We're always temptation ready when we're filled with the Spirit and in communication with the Father, and that's how we say no. So, this first couple of verses says, again, Jesus was full of the Spirit, and he returned from the Jordan River, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. In chapter 3, when you were studying there, you saw Jesus Christ being immersed by a strange-dressed man who was a preaching prophet, and his name, John the Baptist. And when he came out of the water, Jesus had the Holy Spirit come upon him in a demonstrable fashion that looked like a dove resting upon him, and concurrent with that uh, amazing thing, the voice of God was audible to say to Jesus, you are my son, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. That was a defining moment for Jesus. The Father meant it to be so. And now in chapter 4, the very first thing we're told is that Jesus was filled with the Spirit. And that's absolutely crucial to the outcome of this story. And if it's crucial for Jesus at that moment, how much more crucial is it for us to know that we are filled with the Spirit of God when temptation comes our way? So I'm going to make some practical observations as we move through the verses. And the first observation is this one. Being filled with the Spirit overcomes our vulnerability. I don't believe for a moment that Jesus was susceptible to temptation. I know that we are. I know that we don't have to be. Susceptibility and vulnerability 
uh, is an inability to withstand the effects of a hostile environment. That's defenselessness. That's weakness and helplessness. And I don't for a moment think that Jesus was fragile. The incarnation of the second person of the Godhead had never happened before until the conception within Mary. Satan is not omniscient, and he wasn't then. Perhaps he thought that because Jesus was human, he would be vulnerable, but how wrong could he be? A resounding, no, he's not vulnerable. He was filled with the Spirit, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. If he's filled with the Spirit, and that's essential to his victory here, it's absolutely essential for you and I also to be filled with the Spirit of God. Francis Chan, uh, pastor and conference speaker and a well-known author of many insightful books, one of which is entitled Forgotten God, has a subtitle, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, if it's true that we neglect the Holy Spirit. I think it might be a particular failing of people who are really nervous about looking like a charismatic because we're trying to do everything we possibly can to avoid the indication that we are involved in signs and wonders and anything that's bizarre and crazy. And in the process, we're unintentionally ignoring the Holy Spirit. I think a large segment of the church has done that for decades and decades. And we couldn't be more wrong because Jesus, anticipating he was going to leave this planet, told his disciples, I will not leave you desolate. I will not leave you absolutely alone. I will give you another comforter. And the Greek word that they chose for another is a word that means the same kind as myself. So, deity, divine. And then he gives that other comforter a name, Holy Spirit. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And just before he ascended, he told his disciples, I want you to stay in the city of Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they waited. One, two, three, ten days. And on that tenth day, Pentecost. And this crazy power that came upon all of them, so that at the conclusion of the day, there are 3,000 people who had not known Jesus personally, and now by faith came to become followers of the living Christ. Can you just imagine that? We should agree, I think we should agree with Francis Chan. We've ignored the spirit too long and we're reaping the disastrous results. Powerlessness. If we lack the power to resist temptation, we also lack the power to do what God wants us to do. And if a church is comprised of people that are failing to resist temptation, and then failing to do the will of God, what kind of a church is that? That's a church that's discontented, visionless, unconcerned about the people outside it, floundering in lukewarm ceremonialism. We have to take the Holy Spirit seriously and ask him to fill us. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, fill us. There's another observation to make from this passage. We're working with the Trinity to battle temptation. The first one tells us Jesus is leaving the Jordan area. Where is he going to go? He's following the direction of the Holy Spirit. So he's being taken away from all the urban areas, all the agricultural areas, all the people around into a barren location. He's away from any kind of provision except the Holy Spirit. 
He has no handheld device, no Twitter, no iPhone, no Snapchat, no Kindle, no paperback, no backpack with snacks. He's filled with the Spirit of God, and he's in intimate discussion with the Father because the Holy Spirit is counseling him about what lies ahead, namely enticement. Enticement to disobey the Father, to do sin, and enticement to thwart the great plan of God of the ages. So Jesus is in the wilderness, all right, and he's there to be fortified and blessed and comforted and equipped. He's in his 30th year of this incarnation slash reveal the kingdom slash substitutionary death slash salvation project, and it is a Trinity team project, we might say. All three persons of God are involved in doing this. Yes, Jesus is going to be the one who is attacked with the temptation specifically, but the entire Trinity team is going to be involved in rejecting those temptations. One of the primary reasons for Jesus' fasting was that he might spend time alone with the Father, talking to the Father. When we think of fasting ourselves, we want to develop a closer walk with the, with the Lord. We want to shut our minds to the things of the world. We want to focus on Christ. Jesus did a lot of talking to his followers about fasting. One of the things he said is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, and he says, When you fast, do not look somber as hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and they show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have already received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on your head, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. No one's left out here. If you can't fast, for whatever reason, medical reasons, it's still imperative for you and me to consider alone time with the Lord, away from all the things that distract us, because our aim is to be spiritually ready, temptation ready, say yes to God and say no to the devil. When I think of my life, there are so many options that can crowd and compete so that even my well-intentioned desire to pray can get elbowed to the back of the line. There's so many things to grab my attention. So it's a kind of a deliberate effort to be alone with the Lord. We can't triumph over temptation, but he can. And so we've got to rest in him. Another observation. When we are filled with the Spirit, we can take the offensive. I think maybe when we've read this before, we've kind of made the presumption that it was the devil that attacked Jesus. He surprised Jesus somehow. It was a kind of a shocked him. Jesus walked into his territory and all of a sudden the devil assaulted him. And I think it's quite the opposite. The Holy Spirit of God led Jesus to this place. Jesus is the one who stalked Satan and drew him out into the open to initiate this confrontation because Jesus had a lesson he was about to teach Satan. Devil, the devil knew Jesus' capabilities. He had witnessed the creation of the universe. 
and the creation of planet Earth, and he knew that Jesus was instrumental in that creation, why wouldn't he have assumed that Jesus also was the Son of God? It made Satan angry to know that the living God had created a human species to dwell on earth, to look like God and resemble and reflect God, made in his image. And so, Satan looked back at a time much earlier than that when he had attempted to usurp power from God. And that didn't work well for him because he was banished from the presence of God and he was banished from the kingdom of heaven. But these humans, now on this fresh planet, were able to talk with God and walk with God, and that infuriated Satan. And so as soon as possible, he tempted the human species, and they fell. Now they were banished from the garden and banished from the presence, the immediate presence of God. Very soon, the second generation is involved in sin, one brother killing another brother. And then sins exacerbated through all the generations of humanity, even the chosen people of God are a people that sin repeatedly, Israel. Satan's always trying to ruin the plan of God. And now, the second person of the Trinity has become one of those humans. He tried to kill the infant. That didn't work. And now Jesus is an adult. And before the divine plan goes any further, Satan needs to spoil Jesus' perfection. But Jesus is filled with the Spirit. I ask you the question that I ask myself. Are you filled with the Spirit? Do you understand what it means? It's a command. Paul was instructing people how to live, and one of the things that he said to them was, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the verb tenses he's using is hortatory. It's a command. So what does it mean? Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If we're not supposed to drink wine to the excess, drinking so much that we're drunk, and if the metaphor is drinking and drunkenness, how do we drink enough of the Spirit so that we're full of Him? How do we do that? By thinking about the things that are above. God's thoughts, God's ideas, God's values, those things that God prioritizes in His life. That's how we say no to the devil how we stay alert. There's another observation. Satan will seize upon moments when he thinks we are vulnerable. And so, of course, after 40 days, Jesus was hungry. Doesn't it make you sick to think that your Savior, Jesus Christ, had to go through this? He lived in glory at the side of the Father, he comes to earth and he has to be insulted at the age of 30 by this rebellious creature. And so the devil speaks to him in verse 3. 
If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Jesus doesn't have any self-identity crisis or issue. Jesus is well aware of his uniqueness. His parents have talked to him about this ever since he was a boy. His mother would have told him, Gabriel came to me. And this is what Gabriel said to me. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. One day when Jesus was still young, he was missing. His parents couldn't find him. They searched high and low, and they found him, preaching profound truths to train theologians in the temple in Jerusalem And when they expressed their concern about where he had been, not discourteously, he was saying, why were you looking for me? Don't you know I have to be in the house of God? He knew who he was. Not if you are the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Last week didn't come like a newsflash. Chapter 3, verse Luke, in, in Luke, not... To Jesus, when God said to him, you are my son, and I love you, and with you I am well pleased. There's nothing in scripture to suggest that Jesus was confused about his identity. And what he said there in chapter 3's record was intended to make sure Jesus would never have a moment of doubt ever in his life. So Satan can carry on with all of his conversations and his appeals, and it doesn't mean a thing because Jesus has nothing to prove, particularly to this creature. And so in verse 4, Jesus has answered the devil, man shall not live by bread alone. That's Luke's account. Matthew, the veteran disciple, gives us the rest of that quotation. And he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. In the context of God feeding his people in the wilderness area by giving them manna every morning, and they had to go and fetch it. They could be concerned about it, but listen. He's telling them, your lives are not made up of the bread that you make from manna every day. I'm wanting you to pay attention to what I say to you. There's no need to be vulnerable. And I suppose the Holy Spirit of God wants you to hear today, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are his child. You are the child of the Father. And he loves you. He loves you. And you're pleasing to him. That should be motivation enough for us to make right choices and to say no to the devil. In verses 5 through 7, the observation is Satan will tell us lies when enticing us to sin. And the devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, to you I'll give all of this authority and their glory. It has been delivered to me. If 
Jesus had complied with this particular invitation, the devil couldn't have kept his part of the deal because he has no authority over all. Nobody, nowhere in Scripture do you find any indication that it is the prerogative of the devil to grant ownership or authority of the kingdoms of this world to anyone. He doesn't have that power himself. It's a lie. He is the father of lies. Dishonesty began with him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John tells believers, don't love the world or the things that are of the world because they do not come from the Father. And then to further define what that all means, he specifies the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life or pride of possessions. That's all worldliness. And yet these are precisely the aspects of temptation that Satan has used with us and used with Adam and Eve in Eden. And he appeals to Jesus with the same approaches. This is his method of operation. When he tempted Eve, he showed her the tree that God said, you cannot eat from that tree. It's a good tree, fruitful, good to look at, lust of the eyes, good for food, lust of the flesh. And it will make you wise. Pride of life. Pride of possessions. The solicitation of lust of the eyes is exactly now what he uses with Jesus. Somehow he's able to give Jesus this stupendous display of the kingdoms of the earth. I don't know how he does it. Some kind of condensed impressions and satellite imagery and National Geographic photos of landscapes and cities and buildings and people and wealth. All of that in a moment of time. And he says, this can be yours. You don't have to do much. I'm just asking that you bow, that you worship me, and I'll give it to you. No big deal. See, the lies are the devil's forte. How many times to us has he said things like, just try it once. Just one. It's not going to hurt you. All those reports about its danger are exaggerated. If it's good for them and they can do it, why can't you? He'll tell you all these kinds of things because he's gifted at lying. And then Jesus, according to verse says, 8, says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Because there in chapters 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy, God has given the Ten Commandments and all of the law that shall govern the way people live, and it's good. It's good. And don't worship any other gods but me. Another observation from 9 to 11 in this chapter is Satan will misquote or distort God's word to convince you to sin. When you hear what, Jesus, what the devil says now, verse 9, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Well, it sounds like Psalm 91. It sounds like Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. In fact, the problem is, as soon as the devil 
uses those words but has extracted them away from the meaning and intent of the psalm itself, he's not quoting, he's abusing. And that's what the devil does. He twists, he subtracts, he adds to, he rips verses out of their context. The entirety of Psalm 91 was this breathtaking assurance to persons who love the Lord and trust the Almighty and live righteously before Him that He will rescue them, He will deliver them, He will protect them, He will take care of them. There's nothing in that psalm that says to Jesus or any of us giving us permission, look, take an unnecessary risk. What's the problem? You belong to Him. He'll take care of you. No. I had a farmer friend who was a hog farmer, of all things to farm, smelly business, but very lucrative for him. But he also had a, a keen interest in financial and currency futures. And every morning he was in touch with Chicago Stock Exchange. And what he had to do is he had to contract buy a commodity with a sale date. So between now and then, if the commodity dropped, in its value, he had to supplement that with some more money to keep, keep hold of that. He had to borrow money on his farm. And he did that frequently because he was absolutely sold on the fact that God had told him to do this. And he lost the farm. You can't wrest things out of their context and don't believe the devil for a moment. All you have to do is jump. I'm not asking too much because after all, you're the son of God. God's going to grab you and protect you. And Jesus says, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, dipping back into Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 where God also says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And don't forget me. Don't worship any other gods. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Wow, we're such independent people. Our culture tells us to be autonomous. This innate inner sense informs us Look, at, make up your own mind. Make your own decisions. You don't need anybody else. We want to take credit for all the things that we do well, and we don't want somebody to help us. There's another area where the world and the word clash. Jesus said to those who were his disciples, I am the vine. I'm the vine. You are the branches. You're plugged into me. You're connected to me. That's where you get your life. That's how you grow. That's how you produce. I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Wow. But with him I can do all things. Why do we need to pray, 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 pray? Because without him we can do nothing. The entire idea of forgiveness from God is to provide to us a relationship. A relationship with three persons of God. So this morning I'm urging you to do what I have needed to do. 
and that is to confess sin. Two days of the week in the mornings, I walk my youngest granddaughter to school. Her parents have gone to school to teach, and her brother is in high school, and he's already left, and she's alone unless I go there, so I'm not going to let her be alone, and I walk her to school. And this week, she said, I'm memorizing some scripture verses. John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she said it that quickly. And then she said, I know another one. Daddy wrote it on my mirror last night, and I memorized it before I went to bed. 1 John 1, 9. I thought with a smile, good, let's hear that one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, my little granddaughter saying. And I love that. And I need that. And you'd need that too, don't you? Think about if you confess your sin, even if you haven't thought of it all, if you take that time, he'll forgive everything. Everything. And it's only then that the Spirit of God can fill you when you're emptied of all the crap. Then he can fill you. And you ask. First confess, and then ask. It was a command to be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't we know that if we ask anything according to His will, it's His will that you be filled, then you have what you've asked for. Right? That's Scripture. So when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Matthew records that Jesus was a little more assertive than even that. He said, Satan be gone. And then the devil vanished. And Matthew says, angels came and attended Jesus. I want the angels close around me. I want the angels all around us. Maybe they are right now, even when we're not charismatic. Maybe they're filling this place and holding us up and touching our shoulders at the command of the Father. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. You are so good to us. You're so patient with us. And this morning we're crying out to you, would you please hear our prayer of confession and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and then fill us with your spirit so that we will be temptation ready this next moment. Amen. Thank you, Ron and Christine. That's fantastic. Great word for us to not, the whole pendulum swing of the Holy Spirit makes us charismatic or we have to shut it right off, right? But he is a part of the Godhead and I'm hoping we see that more and more bolded in our ministry when it comes to looking through the book of Luke. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 or 1 verse 8, I gotta say it. And you will receive power, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And it goes on. Ever think about that? And he's done a great job. Do not be drunk, or do not, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be drunk or filled with the Holy Spirit. Be driven by the Holy Spirit, because you have received the Holy Spirit, and now you are a witness. It's awesome. 
And it's as simple as what Ron was just even saying, that he's a witness to his granddaughter, and here's a little secret. His granddaughter's also a witness to him. Right? So you have received power through, Holy, through the Holy Spirit, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now go be my witnesses of that. In Jesus' name, amen.